Oh, okay. Well, thankful, thankful to be with you all this month of 2023. And um, there's been some new things that we've started to do as a church body in the beginning of our services here. Uh, one of the things that you guys may have noticed is Daniel is sitting for his sermons now, which is awesome. And I know the biggest question on all of your brains is, am I going to sit for my sermon? And the answer is no, and I'll tell you why. We value consistency in the pulpit here at Terra Nova. And if Daniel sits and I stand, we, we measure about the same height. <laughs> so at, that, at least in that way, we're consistent. <laughs> but <laughs> in, on a more serious note, there's, there's a new thing that we've been doing here that I, I love. It's been a benefit to me. Um, we're praying at the beginning of our service for churches, outside of ourselves, either within our network or in some of the circles that we find ourselves running, Acts 29, or just around the world. Um, so this morning, I'd like to uh, bring Crosspoint Church to you guys in prayer this morning. Many of you won't know uh, who Crosspoint Church, uh, Cross Church is, but it's a church that happens to be very closely related to myself. Um, it's the church I grew up in. And it's the uh, church that one of my mentors, Bobby Allen, is currently pastoring. Now, um, yeah, so Crosspoint's close to me. It might not be close to you guys, but, you know, by proxy. So just so you are all aware, part of my love and desire to pray for this church is that I might, in a couple of years, find myself back going that direction. We don't, me and my wife and our family don't know what God's going to have in store for us long term, but... We can see in a couple years potentially going to plant a church in Utica, New York, which is right by Whitesboro. And, you know, I'm just already excited about the prospect of joining in camaraderie with Bobby Allen and Crosspoint Church. Um, so if, the, if for no other reason than Bobby and Crosspoint Church are important to the kingdom of God, I'd like to bring them to us in prayer this morning. And um, Bobby's newly the lead pastor at Crosspoint. I think uh, the previous pastor, Sam Macri, was there for like 30-something years. You know, just faithfully served. And, you know, when you have a lead pastor of a church there for 30 years, that's a big transition in leadership. There's a lot that changes, and Bobby was understandably nervous about that. And when I called him uh, like a week and a half ago to kind of just touch base, he's like, man, everything went exactly the opposite way. I thought it would go. I thought I was going to have to be, you know, really working hard and tilling soil to get people to move and get new things happening and to, like, really dredge up this energy, but that's not been the case at all. Everything has been quick and moved insanely. Like, the Spirit of God is moving, and these people are just changing. And so much so that when I asked Bobby what we could pray for this morning, he's like, pray for the infrastructure, the systems, all the other stuff that comes up in scaffolds and builds up the church next to the, this energy that can dissipate quickly sometimes. So essentially, there's a little mini revival happening in Crosspoint Church, and we want to pray that the infrastructure and the people and the leaders come up alongside that church to continue to build God's kingdom in Whitesboro and in Utica and in central New York in general. So if you guys would bow your heads with me and pray for Crosspoint this morning. Father, we thank you that you have placed your people throughout the world, throughout the country, and throughout New York. And we thank you for 
Bobby and his leadership of Crosspoint and the people of Crosspoint and the blessing that they are to their community. And Lord, I pray that you would continue this enlightenment, this fervor, this excitement, Lord, that is born of your spirit, Lord, and I pray that it would not fade and it would not become artificial, but Lord, that it would be, remain genuine and unique and that leaders and systems and infrastructures would, although less exciting, come up and bolster these things and keep them stable and steady so that your kingdom can be furthered in the ways that you see fit. Pray your blessing on your people at Cross Point and here this morning. Open our ears and our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Matt already alluded to, we're going to be diving into a uh, mini-series this morning. Last week, Daniel kind of prepped and laid the soil for us to enter this mini-series. He preached on Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 13. And for those of you who maybe missed out, that passage is focused on Sabbath rest. And it's the rest that God entered after he finished creating the world. And it's a celebration and enjoyment of that completion, the completion of that work that he had done. And it's this exact rest that God's currently enjoying that he invites us as his people to enter into alongside him, both now and in the future. So we're going to talk about that rest this morning and the next couple weeks. We're going to start to examine what it looks like for us to enter that rest here and now. And I'm going to take the next few minutes of my time here to kind of lay the ground for the next couple weeks. The Sabbath is more than rest, right? Just the, what we would understand to be rest. I mean, we use the word Sabbath because that's the word Scripture uses. By that, we usually mean a 24-hour period of rest, like what God commanded the Israelite people to do in the Old Testament. And in fact, as we step through these next couple of weeks, we're going to be examining the places in which God has called his people to Sabbath rest. Three very explicit places where that commandment is given to the Old Testament people. And now, the Hebrew word for Sabbath is Shabbat. And as is usually the case, the English word is much less broad and powerful than the, than the Hebrew in fact, you can use four different English words to translate the different aspects of Shabbat. You can say stop, you can say rest, you can say delight, or you can say worship. All of these ideas are encompassed in the idea of Sabbath or Shabbat. And you may hear us continually bring up those four words because they act as a very practical guide to the practice of Sabbath. One seems to follow after the other. Usually we can't stop until we rest. Or we can't rest until we stop. We can't delight until we rest, and we can't worship until we delight. So when you hear the word Sabbath, we think of like this stop, rest, delight, worship complex, this process of stopping our work, resting in the gospel, delighting in the goodness of God and his creation, and worshiping him for all he is. So I'd like to just quickly define these in context because our culture and our world has definitions of these words for themselves. Stopping is more than crashing and turning off after a long week. It's an engaged posture of surrender, 
a place where we stop trying to do things, fix things, and change things, and instead, we hand it all over to God to do with as he wishes. Rest, in our cultural context, is probably better understood to be leisure or leisure. I don't know. I've heard it pronounced both ways. I don't know what's right. But rest is more than leisure. It's an entrance into a state of completeness in Christ. What the Old Testament would call peace or shalom. You may remember we preached on shalom back in Advent. Delight is more than indulgence. Delight is a humble appreciation and joy in what God has placed in our lives. It's free of want and it's free of excess. Worship is more than singing. It's a whole life orientation towards God. We should end Sabbath and thus enter our week with our lives having been freshly reoriented towards God. So when we say Sabbath, we're talking about all these things, and we're talking about practicing these things. Just like we need to repeat an action many times before it becomes muscle memory or repeat the same phrase over and over before it finds itself in our long-term memory, we must practice the stop, rest, delight, worship rhythm constantly until we have it spiritually memorized. And our soul can repeat and play out those truths at a moment's notice. Uh, something that probably should be set up front here, myself, Pastor Daniel, Pastor Matt, and many other people in this congregation and their families have been committed to practicing the Sabbath recently, learning and following this rhythm in our homes and with our families. It's our opinion that it is a beneficial practice for us as Christians. We've seen much beauty and benefit for our families alongside humility, confusion, and sacrifice. I, don't, I do want to be very clear, if you don't practice this, if you don't have this practice as a part of your walk, you're still a Christian, God still loves you, and paradise is still open to you. Jesus rejects legalism on all levels. The call to practicing Sabbath is a, rest, is a call, it's an invitation, a drawing in, a calling into something beautiful. We read in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, Verses 20, verse 27, that the Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is, in a way, subservient under man, made for him, for his betterment. It's one of the central tools in God's toolbox used for bringing us closer to him. Let's think about this. When God organized a calendar, a system of living around himself for his people, it centrally featured the Sabbath. That's a significant thing. I really do think that God intended us to see the gospel as a fulfillment of the Sabbath. We read in Matthew 5.17 that Christ has not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Now, fulfillment can mean a few different things. It can mean that there was a requirement that now having been fulfilled is, not, is no longer required or a practice that doesn't need to be practiced anymore. It can also mean giving fuller definition, meaning, and life to something that was before a shadow, unfulfilled. And we're going to have a whole... Terror talk on this idea how Christians should apply and understand and think about the law. We'll be doing that 
think end of March, beginning of April, something like that. So I'll stop myself from ranting on it now, but let's just say this as an example. Christ's fulfillment of the Sabbath is in many ways like his fulfillment of the Passover feast. We remember often here at Terra every week how Christ fulfilled the Passover, and we do so through communion. His fulfillment of it is not an invitation to forget about it, quite the opposite, actually. We're called to remember and reflect on it because it's for us a window into eternity and a means of grace. Sabbath is the same. It's no coincidence that the wording of the fourth commandment, the commandment which God commands Israel to keep the Sabbath, is focused on remembrance. That happens in Exodus 20, and the fourth commandment's words say this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is helpful for us because we so often get wrapped up in ourselves. We need to take the focus off of ourselves and place it back onto God. Trust me, a Sabbath focused on yourself is exhausting. I've tried it a couple times, and I wouldn't recommend it. Over the next few weeks, we will be looking at passages where God tells his people to keep the Sabbath, and we'll see that he focuses this practice of Sabbath on the specific characteristic of himself. For us to stop, rest, delight, and worship, we must first do the work of remembering, of reminding ourselves and each other of what is true about God, about who he is. Let me give you a quick glimpse into the future. Over the next few weeks, we'll learn that Sabbath rest is experienced when we remember God's provision, his goodness, and his deliverance. And we need to practice doing that because we're forgetful by nature. So we take a 24-hour period, we keep it holy, separate it from the rest of the week, and we practice remembering these things. As we do that, they'll start to spill over quite naturally into the rest of our lives. The rest of the gospel will invade our week, sometimes briefly and sometimes significantly. Sabbath is a means of grace. Now, I said that earlier. What do I mean by that? Essentially, it's a way that God blesses us. He made our bodies and our souls to long for this rest. And often, we just look for rest in other places, and that's called idolatry. Can I give an example that was incredibly striking to me when I first heard it? I think I've, shared, I've probably shared this with a couple people just because it blew my mind when I heard it. Seventh-day Adventists, which is a Christian um, denomination that has some questionable doctrine, to be sure, but they also very strictly keep the Sabbath. Now, when you think about it, committing to a practice of Sabbath is a very time-consuming effort. It's 24 hours of your week, every week, for your whole life. Now, the average American lives around 75 years. So if you do the math, that comes out to 3,900 days of Sabbathing, or just about 10 years of your life committed to this. A couple different studies have found that, on average, Seventh-day Adventists in America live about 10 years longer than everybody else in America. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that other than when you give God something, he gives it back. And he gives it to you for himself, but he does deliver on his promises. 
This all ends in eternity. In many ways, we're, when we practice Sabbath, we're practicing for eternity. An eternal state of Sabbath where we, where we always stop, always rest, always delight, and always worship. Practicing Sabbath is a journey, and God's ready to meet you on that journey. So, let's get going. I have no good way to transition in between the two halves of my sermon here. So I'm going to stop, and we're going to do this traditional Baptist stand-up and say hello to your neighbor. We'll take a few minutes to say hello, greet each other, and then we'll settle back in for the second half here, okay? Okay, that's enough of that. Come on. <laughs> so we're going to go to the first place in the Old Testament where God commands Sabbath. That's... If you want to turn there, it's Exodus 16. We're going to read a pretty beefy part of the passage because I think it's probably a good assumption that God's word's a better teacher than I am. Um, so let's give some context for where Exodus 16 is. Israel's literally just been delivered from Egypt and from Pharaoh, like a chapter earlier. Well, chapter 14 is the culmination of the escape from Egypt. Most of chapter 15 is a psalm of worship given by Moses because they've just escaped Egypt. And then we get to chapter 16, which is where we're going to pick up today. So we've been standing for the reading of God's word here, but I do recognize it's a long passage. So if you are able, stand. And if at any point you feel like you need to sit down, don't feel like it's sacrilegious or disrespectful to do so. But with that caveat, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Again, Exodus 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. When we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Skipping now to verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. 
gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to keep till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Take a seat. You guys don't have to go to the gym tomorrow, uh, today. You've got your little standing workout in. So I've already spent a decent amount of time speaking, and I took the liberty of reading a big portion of text so we could see the full picture. So for the last couple of minutes here, I'd like to break apart this idea of God's provision, how the Sabbath is a chance for us to remember and rest in it. There's a cycle that we progress through as we begin to rest in God's provision. We're called to trust in God's provision, then we're tested to see if we do trust, and then we are taught based off the results of that test. So goes the cycle. So let's step through this process together, trust, test, and teach. In many, in many ways, Sabbath starts with trust. Now, this passage kind of wildly starts with God's people grumbling against Moses and Aaron. They've gone a while without food, and they're beginning to doubt that God is able to provide or willing to provide what they need. Now, just to recap, these people have witnessed firsthand a barrage of miracles, signs, and wonders, not the kind that can easily be explained away by naturalistic or scientific explanations, if they even had those. There's absolutely no way that the Israelites doubted that God was real. What they did doubt was that God was present and that God was caring for them. Our natural inclination here is to judge and mock the Israelites for their lack of faith. Now, we think, oh, if, if we were in their shoes, we wouldn't have forgotten so quickly, right? God's miraculous provision that we would have trusted if we had seen that. In fact, we might even be thinking, if God had given me signs and wonders like the Israelites, I would be, I'd be, man, I'd be so faithful. 
I believe all the time. It's harder now because, you know, we don't have those things. And I, I get that, I and mean, that's, kind of, that's where my brain goes, so maybe I'm projecting on you guys a little bit. But let's examine this for just a second. 45 days is about the time that we're talking about here since they've been taken out of Egypt. They've been in the wilderness 45 days. January 15th was 45 days ago. I don't know about you guys. I have no clue what happened on January 15th. No, no recollection. I don't, even, I don't remember what Daniel preached on January 15th. I had to go back and look at my notes to see if I remembered it at all. A little bit. Time is weird this way, right? It does a great job of causing us to forget and reprioritize our, our memories, even without the effect of disease. It just can't be trusted. We're quick to forget what's been revealed to us. In fact, we often retell stories from the past, not based on facts, but our own interpretation or desires of what we want the facts to be. We convince ourselves that what we thought happened actually happened, and this is like being proved by scientific research all the time. Our memories aren't fixed things. They're always changing and being altered. We're always retelling the story. Who here keeps a journal? Any, I, anyone? If you go back 45 days and read your journal entry, if you keep one, it's like a different person that's talking. You forget so much so quickly. That's why it's important to continually come to a place where we remind ourselves of what is important. What does it look like for you to remind yourself that God is trustworthy? Honestly, writing it down is a good place to start. The act of writing commits things a little more reliably to your long-term memory. Plus, we can go back and reread it if we have any doubts. Keep a journal and fill it with your thoughts, desires, prayers, and experiences of God. When you fill it, take a moment, perhaps on your Sabbath, to go back and review it. And remind yourself of how God has been active and present in your life. Also, be quick to attribute stuff to God. You know, we're quick to explain things away because we understand the circumstance or the chain of events or the whatever led up to that thing happening. We can explain how it happened in regular terms. But if I study Steph Curry's three-point shot, right, I watch hours and hours of tape. I break it down to the muscle and the tendon. I know what each muscle and tendon is doing at any given point. Does that make him a better or worse shooter? If I know exactly how he makes that shot, does it make it any more miraculous? Does it diminish the magic of it when he actually is one of the best shooters of all time? We have a God that uses science, human relationship, cultural dynamics, and world events to accomplish his will. And the fact that we can see how things work together doesn't make it less miraculous. Be quick to attribute things that happen in your life to him, and even if you think you can explain it. The Sabbath box has been a helpful habit and practice for my family. At the beginning of Sabbath, which is usually Friday night for us, is just how it works out, we take a sheet of paper and we write a box on it, and we take a few moments to pray and answer three questions. What have you left undone this week? What, have you, what do you want? And what are you afraid of? Essentially, it's a list of to-dos, a list of desires, and a list of fears. We write them down. Pray over them, and then dedicate them to God. We stop 
doing, worrying, and reaching for things that we don't yet have. We, find, we try and find contentment in where we are right now. That's the essence of stopping, right? And we'd been just throwing out the pieces of paper after that, right? We'd done, but Christina has convinced me that we should keep them and have a little bit of a Sabbath journal. Go back, see what God has done over this practice, over our, over our lives. Keep tra as we keep track of God's faithfulness, we take time to remind ourselves of it, we grow to trust him more and more. And in this way, the Sabbath is formative, right? It helps make us more like Jesus. And when I say that, I mean living in a complete and utter reliance on God. When we endeavor to trust God, he will test us. Now, what do I mean by test? I think we all have some kind of attached level of anxiety to the word test, right? Images of late night cramming and studying and pots of coffee come to mind for me. Literally, in college, I would have like pots of coffee. It was not healthy. But it's not really the most helpful way to think about a test. A test is about revealing quality, right? A blood test, for example, is taken to show the facts of what health problems may or may not be lying under, under your skin. When I was younger, I used to collect minerals, right? You know, I had a little collection of little... Uh, geodes and stuff, and um, one of the things I had was this piece of fool's gold, or pyrite, right? It looks a little bit like a real gold, it was, hence the name, but there was a couple tests you could do to see if it was truly what it was saying it was from the outside. One of those tests was a streak test, which you basically take the rock and you rub it against something hard. If it's pyrite or fool's gold, it will leave like a green-black streak. And if it's regular gold, it'll be like a white-yellow streak, and you probably just ruined a really expensive piece of gold. <laughs> Thanks, Ruben. <laughs> well, that's what God's talking about when he says Sabbath is a test, right? It reveals what's underneath. I'll read that piece of the passage again when God says he's going to test his people. It's Exodus 16, 4 through, 6, uh, 4 through 5. Then the Lord says to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, how is raining bread from heaven a test, right? It doesn't really fit our understanding of the word, but think about it with me for a moment. For six days, God rains bread and quail from heaven, a remarkable show of his provision. But then he says, don't gather too much. Don't hoard it for fear that I will not provide for you the next day. God invites his people to trust in his provision. And not only that, he gives ample proof for six days that he will continue to be trustworthy. And that if they should hoard the food, it would rot anyway. So what's the point, right? The test is simple here. Do you trust me to provide? Do you trust God to provide? Do you consider him to be faithful? And many still hoarded food nonetheless, in spite of all the facts and all the evidence of who God is. The practice of Sabbath is going to test us in this same way. We don't trust God often, so we try and secure ourselves, justify ourselves, and free ourselves. And we just don't have the power to do any of these things. Let me give you a personal example. As you can probably imagine, 
Practicing Sabbath with young children isn't the easiest thing in the world. My wife's a stay-at-home mom, as some of you know, and she loves being home with our girls, but as you can imagine, being loved and needed by an infant and a toddler all day isn't necessarily conducive to sitting down with a book and a nice cup of tea and just having a nice, you know, cozy day. It doesn't really work out that way. Often, me and Christina will take turns um, trying to maybe go get a cup of coffee and just, you know, be alone with our thoughts for an hour or so on Sabbath. But what that often has degraded into is this kind of nagging anxiety for either of us that if we don't get the time that we need to really rest, then, you know, it's, it's not fair, it's all this. Like, we, we put up these expectations, and then we're, like, really upset with each other about, like, oh, well, I'm with the kids, I'm with the office, you know. And it's just, it, presto, we're working ourselves into a tizzy, trying to secure the rest for ourselves instead of trusting God for it. It's easy. It's really easy to get into that place. What is it that you find yourself anxious about? The nature of Sabbath, taking a day to trust in God's provision, is that he will show you very quickly where you think he's not working quickly enough or efficiently enough to bring about what you think you need. And that's the test. Will you rely on God's provision or will you try and do it yourself? Will you hoard and trust your resources or God? This could be true of money, time, energy, anything that we have a seemingly limited supply of. One of the ways this manifests for me is that I can't seem to enjoy time without spending money. I don't know why this is, but if I feel like I'm going to rest, I have to go get a coffee, I have to go buy some pipe tobacco, I have to like, like, I would rest better like buying a room in like some weird, like just like sitting in a room as opposed to sitting in a room in my own house, because for some reason I think if I pay for something, it's more restful, right? It's just so convoluted, but that's, I, maybe someone else is, is the same. I just don't trust God for that often. And I trust in money for that, right? I trust in my resources to be able to provide that for me, right? You'll find stuff like that. You know, that's, that's what the test is. That's what this test reveals. And the question becomes... Do we learn what God teaches us through this test? Do we see what God reveals in us, right? You know, we talked about having a soft heart a couple weeks ago, and you might want to revisit that sermon. I don't have, I have Hebrews 3, somewhere in there. God, te- God tests, you know, sorry. God's tests are not like your high school or your college exams, right, where you can just pass the test by cramming and stuffing everything into like two days, and then you forget it all right? No, his tests serve a much larger and long-lasting purpose. Proverbs 17.3 says that the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. Silver and gold are put into crucibles and furnaces to shape and refine them, to make them beautiful and fit for use. This is exactly what God is doing in us when he exposes the ugly sides of our heart. He's refining us and giving us a choice to weed out that ugly part of us. He's making us more beautiful. He's helping us to look more like Jesus. He's forming us, shaping us, and making us fit for service in his kingdom. We need to listen, though. We need to soften our hearts and receive and apply God's rebukes. 
Hebrews 3, if you remember, is an exposition in a way of Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is talking about Exodus 17. It's the passage just after the one we read. Right, so I'm going to read that for you guys real quick. It's much shorter. Don't worry. It's 1 through 7 here. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by, the, by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Remember that thing I did like 45 days ago when I split the sea into two? Yeah, let's bring that thing in. Maybe that might help. Behold, I will stand there before you. There on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. So Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? You see how that shifts, right? We're supposed to trust God, and then he tests us. If we don't apply that lesson, if we don't allow ourselves to be taught, we reverse that and we start testing God. Even after so much miraculous provision, they still doubted that God was caring for them. It's this unbelief that the author of Hebrews cites as the reason for the Israelites' inability to enter into the promised land. We're then warned to take care personally, lest we suffer the same fate. Whatever eternal rest looks like, we cannot enter if we do not have faith in God. That's why practicing Sabbath is so important. It helps us to grow in our trust, grow in our faith, and just become better obeyers. It helps us hear God's voice more clearly. It makes us more sensitive to it. If we don't practice obedience and trust, we're practicing disobedience and unbelief. There's no neutral state here, guys. I haven't necessarily painted a rosy picture of the Sabbath thus far, right? And part of the reason for that is God's not going to let us enter his rest under false pretenses. Rest, delight, worship are to be had in this, but if we don't lay a suitable foundation for it, not much we can do. The only suitable foundation for our rest, our joy, our delight is Christ. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. This really has been a message on stopping that engaged posture of surrender. The work of trying to have more control over our lives is really idolatry. And this can take many forms, and it will take time and practice for you personally to give those idols names in your own life. Again, let me speak to my family's personal experience. We started practicing a 24-hour Sabbath, December of 2022. So we haven't been doing it long, right? But since then, we've experienced more freedom, growth, and joy than we've ever seen. 
We've also experienced more conflict and a need for repentance that we've never been more aware of. These things were not created by our practice of Sabbath, but they were revealed by it. Now, this isn't a bad thing, right? Those idols need to go. Now, we tend to think of this type of failure as a catastrophic thing, and it can be if we don't harness the power of that failure to bring us closer to the place we need to be, closer to Jesus. We don't need to view failure as a negative. A failure to trust God makes you aware of your lack of trust, and that's much better than the lack of trust lurking under the surface. We should be quick to confess this so it doesn't linger. Confess to God and to brothers and sisters. If it's a life of worship, of whole life orientation towards God that we're trying to get here, that needs to start with a reorientation of ourselves with repentance and confession. Pastor Tyler Stanton uh, had some good words that I heard recently on the podcast from him, so I'd like to share those with you as we close and I ask the band to come back up. In some ways, confession is a downer. It's the acknowledgement that there's this ever-present gap within me between who I am and who I really intend to be and want to be. But to confess it is not to wallow in shame and despair. It's to invite Jesus to wash over my failure by his grace. It's good news. A lie that I think the church often believes is that as we grow up in Christ, we need to confess less because we've got less to confess. But it is the opposite. We become more aware of how much we have to confess. But the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus means that confession isn't a white flag, it's a victory flag. Confession is the means to our redemption. And that's another practice that we take part in weekly here at Terra Communion. As we take time to remember Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection and what that means for us, we need the reminder. One more thing. If you commit to this practice, and I... Spoiler, I think you should. (laughs) It will be hard, right? But you won't be alone in it. We have people in our church already committed to practicing this. I already asked about journaling. Raise your hand if you practice it, or at least try to practice the 24-hour Sabbath. Some hands went up. If you have questions, ask. If you don't know where to start, ask, right? We found personally for us That's other people that make our Sabbath exactly what it needs to be. When we start with having somebody over for dinner and we engage in that Sabbath meal together, that's how it starts and that's how it's beautiful. Rich Velotis, a pastor from Queens, uses the analogy of redwood trees to talk about spiritual formation. Redwood trees can grow up to be about 400 feet tall, but their root systems only go about seven feet deep. That's a really bad ratio, and it makes you wonder how they can even stand until you realize that the root systems go about 100 feet out from the base and that these trees are all really close together and these root systems entangle with one another and make each other stronger. Let's be each other's teachers through this. Let's help each other. Let's hold each other up, exhort one another while we listen to the Spirit of God and strive to enter that rest. Let's pray.
Father, you're patient. You really are. I mean, you ask so little of us. You ask for one day. Really, all creation, all of time, all of everything is yours. But you recognize that we are weak. You remember our frames. You know that we are dust. Lord, help us to become reliant on you. Help us to remember that you are the only essential in this universe, that if we're to stop our work, the world's not going to collapse, our families aren't going to collapse if we rest. You uphold us. We thank you for that. We thank you for the promise of rest and peace in Christ that we celebrate. Thank you. Amen.